This is Studio Two. Welcome on in, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg on a Thursday, the day before Shabbat. Every Friday night, Jewish people around the world celebrate the Sabbath with food, song, and prayer. Adina Sussman's new cookbook is called Shabbat, and it highlights the foods that define this weekly ritual. She'll join us later along with Philadelphia superstar chef, Michael Solomonov to talk about that connection between gathering and gastronomy. I like that. Tell word. us. You like you like that? I, I do. think I actually wrote that by the way. I <laughs> give myself good. a pat on the back. Tell us what recipes you like to cook on Shabbat or maybe it's a Sunday dinner, any sort of weekly family gathering. We've already got a couple of entries. We're gonna read some of those on air later in the hour. Studio two at WHYY.org is the email address. Before that, we're gonna talk about Temple. Not the synagogue version, but Temple University. Scandals, instability, falling enrollment. It has not been a happy decade for this major institution in our city. Writer David Morrell recently went long on Temple for a feature in Philadelphia Magazine, and we're going to talk with him about that piece later in the segment. But first, we're going to do some news roundup, Cherry, and we're going to talk first about the Sixers arena. So initially... The folks that were uh, proposing this development wanted to have city approvals midway through Mm. 2023, June of 2023. That did not happen. They pushed their timeline to the end of 2023. And then this morning, we learned in the Inquirer in an article by Sean Collins Walsh that now they are pushing that timeline back again, looking for city approvals maybe sometime in the winter, early next year. So delay, delay, delay as, of course, there has been some pretty fierce resistance to the proposal to put a Sixers arena in the Market East neighborhood abutting Chinatown. Yeah, well, the city is doing a study to look at it, and that uh, study won't come out till the end of next month. So the pushback to me isn't unreasonable at this point. Then, of course, you got to give the community a chance to respond, and then council has to look at that response. So, um, and I think, you know, Councilman Squilla has said, don't rush it. And so, yeah, I mean, this, this... Arena has proved probably to be a little bit more controversial than the Sixers originally thought it would be. Yeah. Heavy or pushback, hope, at least, yeah. or at least hope, heavy yep. pushback from Chinatown. We expected that. But, you know, you even had the urban planners crit- yes. criticizing. Yep. Yep. So uh, a lot more, um, I guess, dust and fla- a flashpoint here, probably more than um, had hoped or anticipated. And so we'll see. I wonder if that eight-year timeline will also get pushed back. Right. That's the timeline to build the arena. And uh, I'll also mention, in terms of instability and dust not being settled, politically, the folks who would have to sign off on this are sort of indetermined at this point. So Mark Squilla represents that part of the city, and Mm -hmm. he is firmly ensconced in his position in city council. However, we don't know who the next council president is going to be, and we don't know who the next mayor is going to be. And even if we think we know who that person's going to be, the person's not in power yet. Mm -hmm. And so it does sort of make me wonder how much of this is about political timing as well. Maybe none of it. Maybe it's just because of everything that you discussed, but there could be some political calculus sprinkled in. Yeah, and so we will see. We will see. And, uh, you know, another we will see comes in response to arguments before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. On Wednesday, they heard arguments about whether cities like Philadelphia should be able to pass their own firearm laws. Uh, The story was done on WHYY.org by our gun violence prevention reporter, Sammy Kayola. We all know this. I mean, Avi, Philly has been plagued with gun violence, having hit 500 plus 
gun homicides multiple times over the past few years. And local lawmakers, they've argued that their hands are tied by these preemption laws from the state. So the city's lawyers, they argue before the high court that these preemption, this preemption law violates the state constitution. They claim the laws deprive Philadelphians under the threat of gun violence of their right to life and liberty. And that law, if you don't know, it says that no country, county, municipality, or township may in any manner regulate the lawful ownership, possession, transfer, or transportation of firearms, among other language. And that law has prevented Philly, for example, from banning guns at rec centers, um, stopped them from requiring reporting of lost and stolen guns, among other efforts. And I think the city and other areas or, or other cities and municipalities dealing with gun violence feel like this is a last-ditch effort. It's unclear, though, how the court will rule. The state statute is not new. I believe 1974. It has always been upheld. It has weathered any challenge before it. So, I mean, you never know. Look, the, the Pennsylvania school funding lawsuit, mm-hmm. the, the, the precedents around that were solid for a long, long time until they weren't, right? So, so you never know what the state Supreme Court is going to do, how they're going to interpret the state constitution. But in the past, they're, they've never been able to challenge the constitutionality of yeah. this preemption statute, which basically says, hey, cities, you cannot make gun restrictions tougher than what the state has established. Mm-hmm. The state gets to put the regulations in place, not the city. And, and by the way, gun rights advocates, they push back. They said, hey, your district attorneys and prosecutors do a, need to do a better job using the laws already on the books. Right. And, and the court Which was is a mixed. line we've heard many yeah. times before. Yeah, yeah. Democratic uh, judges tend to have the majority on the court, but it's still unclear. The questions as to, you know, which way they'll fall was still unclear. So, as I said before, we will see. We're always waiting to We're see. We're always waiting to see. <laughs> That's, That's like what we thing. do, yeah. Also waiting to see what happens with SEPTA. Uh, speaking of Harrisburg, SEPTA leaders went to Harrisburg earlier this week. And basically Mm. laid down the gauntlet. Mm -hmm. They said that they project a $240 million annual deficit beginning July 2024. That's coming up really soon. That's a fiscal cliff. Mm -hmm. And they say if they don't get more state aid, they are preparing to do two things, which is boost fares and cut service, Mm. which is kind of the double win. More money for less. Yes, exactly. So you're going from a $2 fare to a $3 fare for those SEPTA rides, then a 20% cut in service, which they say would be like the bare bones early pandemic level of service coverage for SEPTA. They say this can be prevented. This is what the SEPTA leaders Mm -hmm. say. If the state will take a greater percentage of the revenue generated by sales tax and steer it to public transit. So not raise taxes, mm-hmm. but take the tax revenue and give a bigger chunk of the pie to SEPTA and other regional authorities that run transit systems. Um, we'll see if state legislators go for that. All these we'll see. But, but, yeah. but, the, but the, the fiscal cliff, we all saw this coming because ridership has been down through the pandemic. Pandemic aid helped push this back, mm-hmm. this fiscal cliff back. The kicking back, of the can. The kicking yeah. of the can, but you can only kick so far. And I will say, some people have asked why SEPTA didn't raise these the fares before now. Why wait till now? Right. You some know, of the legislators have said that. They've yeah. said that. Why did you wait till like the funding ran out and that it's at right. a crisis level? Um, so we will see. Um, it looks to which like, SEPTA says, we're trying to get people back on the system. We don't yeah. want to raise fares. But what is clear to me is that the problems are so in our face at this point that it looks like lawmakers looks like SEPTA no one can ignore the problems that are before us and look Leslie Richards CEO was on this show and warned and warned Mm -hmm. of this very candidly the details are what's new it's it's the 20% reduction in service plus the $3 fares 
putting numbers on it and saying, this is what we are going to do if you do not give us more money. That's the new part of this evolution of this topic. Yeah, it's going to be a big deal. We'll be watching it, of course. We're always watching it. Yeah, we're always watching. We're like, <laughs> like, perching. we're like owls. We're wait, like owls wait. perching. Oh, transition. Nice. But speaking of timing and having to deal with issues head on, Temple University, by the way, one of my alma maters, mm -hmm. uh, I was a, a adjunct professor there for a couple of years. Disclaimer. I ended. Yes, I'm, that's my disclaimer for the next discussion. My relationship there ended in May, but. How much turmoil can Temple University take? That is the question right now. And that's also the headline of a recent piece in Philadelphia Magazine. It's written by our next guest, David Morrell. What does the word turmoil refer to? Well, a lot of things. The president's resigning, enrollment falling, campus safety issues. The list goes on and on. And the fate of the city's only four-year public university, it feels as precarious as ever. And David Morrell joins us to talk about it. He's a contributor to Philadelphia Magazine. David, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. I want to start with a quote from your piece, David. You write, in a city of universities, Temple is without question the one that best mirrors Philadelphia's own identity. I want you to tell folks what you mean by that, but also why you feel, and you state very well in this piece, why you feel Temple's fate and the city's fate are so intertwined. Sure. I think there are a couple of reasons why this is the case. I mean, one of them is that, you know, it's it's the city's only four-year public university, which is kind of shocking given you mm -hmm. think about Philadelphia as this, you know, meds and ed city of universities. There's really only one four-year um, public university, which is Temple. Um, the other thing is that, you know, it, it was founded with this kind of very explicit civic mission um, you know, the, the school originated with a, like some, a minute, Russell, Russell Conway, I believe, yeah. or Conwell. Conwell, yeah, Conwell. Conwell. Um, yeah. it, it goes in and out. The, I'm like, I remember, I remember all this <laughs> stuff, and then it's like the piece is done, and I'm like, who are these people? Um, but he started the school basically like teaching people in a church basement, yeah. and the, the university has always sort of had this civic mission of, you know, um, sort of be, having access to education um, and schooling the the. Philadelphia population, and then also this idea that um, there are sort of, he gave this famous speech saying there are acres of diamonds, yep. um, which a lot of temple people sort of know and remember, um, basically meaning that like you don't have to look far and wide for talent. It can be right here. These diamonds are in your backyard. Um, so, you know, it has a sort of real big connection to the city because, you know, it, it's explicitly Philadelphia focused. Uh, a huge number of school district teachers come from temple as well, which I think is kind of interesting. So you think about, um, you know, sort of the next generation of employees coming from Temple. And just the last thing I'll add, which I found kind of fascinating, is I, I looked at how many people who go to Temple stick around in the city mm -hmm. after graduation. And according to Temple's career surveys in the, for the class of 21, 40% was still in the city and 60% mm -hmm. in the state. Compared to at Penn, where only twelve percent of students yeah. were still in the state, yeah, they take the they take local talent, yeah. they sort of uplift, and then those people stick around, and they they create the next chapter of the city's history. I think that's the that's the idea of yeah. Temple, right, Jerry? And even our newsroom have a we have a lot of Temple yeah. grads here. Right, and you're so, an example, <laughs> exactly. And so I want to sort of like talk about this turmoil, the the you know, and people will probably heard and seen some of the headlines, but maybe not all together. Can you just, you know, take a minute and a half or so and just kind of give us a quick summary of the major uh, problems that Temple has faced in recent years? 
Yeah, I mean, that's going to take more than a minute and a half. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess give us the highlights. I, highlights. Know, the highlights. Highlights. I, I, I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah, the, the, the real recent things, you know, big controversy um, about a football stadium in the mid-2010s, around 2016. Uh, they fired a president named Neil Theobald, I think, around that same time. Um, and then basically had a temple lifer come in named Dick Englert, who basically was there for five years, uh, a period that's thought of basically as, you know, sort of stagnant, um, not necessarily addressing maybe fundamental problems. There was the Bill Cosby scandal. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Forgot he, about that. He yeah. was on the board of trustees forever. Um, and the head of the board of trustees at the time, Patrick O'Connor, uh, represented Cosby yep. um, in one of the early, in the Andrea Constant sexual assault uh, litigation. So this was before it was a criminal case. This was in the 2000s. Um, but that sort of came back to light when the whole yep. Cosby criminal trial was coming. You know, the charges were filed and that process started to play out. Um, so that's like the old history. The most recent history is that Jason Wingard, the f first black president in the, in the school's history, was hired um, and lasted only a year and a half before mm -hmm. resigning. Um, basically, there was a grad student strike, yep. which uh, yeah. was not handled very well. The, administra the administration even admits this now. Yep. Um, spoke to the board of trustees, current chair Mitch Morgan, who said that was you know the strike was handled terribly. Uh, he said that quite candidly. Um, that it was handled terribly because they shut off the tuition remission, meaning that the grad students yes. had to pay their yes, own tuition yes, yes. and also their health care. Which became a national story. Became a national story, yep. right. And then the other thing is uh, campus safety with the murder of the officer, Temple Police Officer Fitzgerald, yep. as well as the student, um, Samuel Collington. Yep. So kind of a whole range of factors so swirling much. around. Yeah. So yeah. much. There's so many things. And amid all of that, this big headline number, enrollment is way down. I think mm -hmm. you, you, you mentioned it's down 23% since 2017. And that's where Temple's money is, right? Because Temple doesn't have a huge endowment compared to Pitt, Penn State, certainly the University of Pennsylvania. They rely on tuition dollars. So does anyone have a sense of what the plan is to at least stem the losses and hopefully turn around that enrollment trend? I mean, I, I honestly don't. The, the piece did not get super prescriptive, and I don't even really know what yeah. the solution is. I mean, I think that the challenge is that um, as you mentioned, you know, it, it, the school has a much lower enrollment compared to, or a much lower endowment that is, uh, yeah. compared to, you know, other, uh, institutions that are sort of in a similar funding situation. Uh, the campus safety problem is a real, you know, fear for parents not wanting to send their kids into a neighborhood that, you know, is having some real challenges. And, you know, those are challenges that got worse during the pandemic. They're challenges that exist in, in neighborhoods throughout Philadelphia. Uh, so Temple is not going to solve crime in Philadelphia, right. you know. Right. Um, so that's a tricky situation for them. And the other element is that, you know, there are other schools like Westchester nearby that mm -hmm. are fully public institutions, which we don't need to really get into except to say that it's a little bit cheaper for in-state yep. students. Um, and so, you know, that school is doing better than Temple. And you can think, well, why would I send my kid to a more expensive school that maybe has safety concerns when I could send them to Westchester? Yep. That's a great point. And so you got to speak with board chair Mitchell Morgan. Um, how big of, of a deal was this? Because Temple usually does not speak you know, freely, um, yep. very controlled messaging. How big of a deal was this for your reporting? And can you, did, did he really provide, in your mind, deeper insight into some of the dysfunction that we're all seeing? Um, yeah, he definitely did. Uh, it was surprising to get him to speak yeah. with me. I mean, mm -hmm. there's kind of this sort of plays out yeah. plays out in the story a little bit. But I sort of mentioned that initially I wrote to him and he said, you know, he basically wrote back and said, I don't, you know, Philly Mag, I'm not sure about, you know, 
but doing then, the, doing but this. Then he did it. Yeah. And, and then and then he sent e- emailed questions back, um, and then eventually I spoke to a different trustee who sort of convinced him to talk. And I my pitch to him was like, look, you know, everyone is saying that the the board is a black box. No one understands why people do yep. make the decisions they do. Like this is the chance to say what you're thinking, you know, what you want to do differently, if anything. Um, and, you know, to my surprise and pleasure, I mean, he was very candid. I thought he was, a, you know, he was thinking critically. I mean, you, you might disagree with his perspective on things. Um, I'm sure some still do, even reading the story. Yep. But he was very upfront. I mean, he he was pointed in saying that Wingard did not work out. Yep. You know, he mentioned the board is, has a terrible sort of messaging problem. Not good with communication. Not good with yeah. communication. Um, so I give him credit for, for that. Can I read one more quote from him? And this will be our final question as we wrap up. He, he told you, we, as in Temple, change lives. We really have a much more important mission than Penn. I mean, it's not to say Penn's not important, but most of those kids are financially more secure. Our kids are gritty. My big question, reading this whole piece, who does Temple serve and who does Temple want to serve? Are they trying to attract kids, 18-year-olds, maybe from the suburbs or out of state, who will pay full tuition and want that kind of big college experience? Or are they doing the Acres of Diamonds thing, trying to really serve the city, maybe kids who need some uplift and some help into higher ed? We have only 30 seconds left, but do you think you know the answer to that now? I think that there is – I think the one thing that stays consistent about Temple is the ideal – the ideal is still there. The ideal is definitely still there. Everybody talks about the ideal. I think that during, when under different provosts, under different presidents, under different board chairs, this, the, what Temple does is different, um, and it doesn't always line up with that ideal. But Actions I, and words. Right. Actions Not and always. Words. Absolutely. That's David Morrell, contributor to Philadelphia Magazine. He went deep on Temple and its future, some of its past. Uh, it's a great story worth your time. David, thanks for joining us on Studio 2. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Coming up, Chef Michael Salomonoff and Adina Sussman are talking about one of our favorite Studio 2 topics, food. Stick with us. Supporting WHYY, the Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Funded by the Knight Foundation, the Chamber announces its Leading the Way Cell and Gene Therapy in Greater Philadelphia report. More at chmbr.biz backslash cgtphl. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman Arendt. For many Jewish people around the world, Friday night at sundown marks the start of Shabbat, the Jewish day of rest. And many Jewish families and friends gather together to eat a relaxed meal. And I mean really relaxed, really chill. It's a wonderful tradition. Food writer Adina Sussman has a brand new cookbook celebrating that tradition of Shabbat with recipes from Shabbat tables all around the world. And with Shabbat coming up tomorrow, along with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, we thought it was a great time to talk with Adina. We also roped in her longtime friend and Philly guy, Michael Salomonov, who may have and you may have eaten at one of his restaurants. I know I have. Mm-hmm. The James Beard <laughs> Award-winning chef is co-owner of Zahav, Laser Wolf, Federal Donuts, and Goldie, among others. We sat down with Mike and Adina to talk about what Shabbat means to them. I wanted to ask both of you about your Shabbat traditions growing up. So, Adina, pretty observant household, right? It was, but... I grew up Orthodox Jewish, but I grew up in Palo Alto. It wasn't like growing up in a, a heavily Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. So, yeah, we did all the Shabbat rituals and we, did all, we didn't we did do all the non-Shabbat things like use the phone, drive, and use electricity. But 
you know, I was running down into the creek by my house after Shabbat lunch and like playing with the tadpoles and frogs. And, <laughs> you know, so it was like a combo. And um, but yeah, our, you know, Shabbat was the culinary center of our life, the cultural center, the spiritual center, and just like a time when I knew that I was going to have undivided time with my family for 24 hours, which I think as a kid, like I didn't realize how well that set me up for a lot of things in life. Um, I kind of took it for granted when I was younger. Um, but yeah, it was, it's a beautiful tradition. Um, and a lot of those traditions center around food. So that worked out well for me because that's what I do for a living. <laughs> Set you up nicely. Michael, how about you? So I grew up in a conservative uh, Jewish household in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I feel like Shabbat was, we weren't super strict, but there was always like challah, brisket, candlelighting, mm -hmm. wine. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes like... You know, just kind of hanging out as a family, watching a movie or something like that, which is good. But, you know, it was weird. It was this, like, juxtaposition of, like, my mom, who was born in the States, moved to Israel, didn't want to leave Israel. And then we ended up back in Pittsburgh because my dad, who was Israeli, wanted to be in the United States. And my dad is, like, a pork-eating, like, atheist, <laughs> you know? And my mom, my mom grew up not religious, but... Um, she grew up in Ohio, so like Jewish identity, unlike Palo Alto, uh, there just weren't a ton of Jews, and the, so the Jewish community was like really, really tight. Yeah, and yeah. so it kind of once we moved back to Israel, it we were actually way less traditional. Yeah, um, Israel does a lot of the work for you. Yeah, <laughs> it does the whole because, because society kind of stops, right? Yeah, and also just you know Jewish culture is, I would say prevalent there yeah. so you know even if you're not observing the rituals the whole country is Shabbat it's kind of like a national holiday yeah. <laughs> that happens every Friday so the whole country kind of slows down and all you're asking people starting Thursday night when our weekend starts is what are you doing for Shabbat dinner <laughs> right are you making your own challah this week are you making a cholent which is like a huge pot of meat beans and meat and potatoes and but you know and then there are there are 15 different kinds because there are so many different immigrant um, and local food culture so a lot of it centers around food, but it's just built into the culture, right? And I was saying this is a remind me of Sunday dinner, but yes. like times three. It's Sunday supper, exactly. Or it's Sunday dinner, or if like like in a lot of like uh, American Italian homes, it's like Sunday lunch, which is like a four hour yeah. 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 ordeal. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, everybody is doing it. And and I want to I want to jump in here because the thing that stood out to me was that for this day of rest. There is a lot of preparation that goes into it. And I want you both to sort of talk about what that preparation means to you. Yeah. The act of preparing the food mm -hmm. for this day of rest. I'd say the iconic Shabbat dish that is prepared before and then eaten on Shabbat is called chalent or chameen or dafina or tabit. It's like a... A stew that's usually has protein and starch along with a lot of other things and it's put on a hot plate or in the oven before sundown on Friday night and just left to its own devices until Saturday at like noon or even later so it's this pot of deliciousness that you have you know invested in before the weekend and then it just pays off all day on Saturday you know you can open it up 
and there's the incredible aromas, you know, of all this food that's been steaming into itself and cooking and flavors concentrating and little burnt edges and crispy sides and all kinds of amazing stuff going on in there. And everyone gets to pick like their favorite pieces. Like my husband loves the potatoes the most. And I really like, you know, the the meat and different people like the grains or the beans or, you know, and then there are, of course, also all the Jewish traditions that came from Arab countries that Jews immigrated to Israel with. So there are all kinds of, as like my husband likes to call them, toys that go into these stews, mm. like different dumplings mm. and different even little meatloafs and also long cooked eggs, which are called huevos aminados, you know, mm. that came from Spain. So it's really, it's also a mirror into Jewish history yeah. and Jewish cooking history all in one pot. You see like the peregrinations of the Jewish people and how they traveled around and a lot of them eventually found their way to Israel and, yeah. and the food kind of became like a something cohesive there. I think that's such an important part of this book because if you grow up Jewish here yeah. and you don't live in Israel, you don't travel to Israel, yeah, or if you just have Jewish friends here, you yeah. have a certain concept mm -hmm. of Judaism that is really European-centered, Eastern European-centered. Right, we call it Ashkenormative. Ashkenormative. <laughs> ah, <laughs> Ashkenazi Thank you for that. Ashkenazi <laughs> is, means Eastern European right. Jewish. Right, and so, and, and that's, many of the Jews who live here come from that tradition, but it, this book has recipes from South Africa and Uzbekistan mm -hmm. and even Italy in a sense. Africa, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a true melting pot book and you get a sense of what Judaism is outside of the American concept just by flipping through the pages. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's, you know, turning it back to Mike, you know, that's what Mike started with Zahab is like globalizing people's idea of what Jewish food is. You know, it's true, growing up as an American Eastern European Jew, Eastern European descent, like the idea of Jewish food was chopped liver, matzo mm -hmm. ball soup, roast chicken, potato kugel, and I love all those things, and they're all in my book. I got some whitefish salad at my oh, desk yeah, right now. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know... You're my... just trying to show off, okay? <laughs> Where is it? I, 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 yeah. It's literally at my desk. I got a bagel with whitefish. Uh, amazing, but, you know, bringing in the flavors of the Mizrahi um, or, you know, North African and Sephardic cultures really rounds out the picture and you know in israel more you know more than half the jews at, at this point are from those countries and the book's only been out for three days but i've already gotten messages from people saying i feel seen like you know thank you for including you know this dumpling from bukhara even though it look i have to say i'm not breaking any revolutionary ground with the book other books have you know, cook these dishes, but I think I mix them in a way that makes people feel it's it's neither a Mizrahi or an Ashkenazi book. Yeah. It's not it's it's a Jewish book because I'm Jewish and, and I live in Israel, but it's really a book about it's a book. It's a vibe <laughs> like Shabbat, as, is, as Shabbat is a vibe. Shabbat is a mindset. Yeah. Shabbat is for everybody. Shabbat is about having a big tent and hospitality at the table and cooking the food that suits you at that weekend you know it's Shabbat meets you where you're at like spiritually sort of energy level wise if you want to cook all day you can do that and if you just want to make like one pot like I was talking about and then have a salad with it like that's amazing as well one of the things you do in your book Adina is give a Mike and other chefs like Mike uh, kudos for oh, yeah. globalizing <laughs> like you said globalizing um, the cuisine and bringing in ingredients like cauliflower and mm -hmm. I thought that was very interesting. What other what are the basic ingredients that you think folks sort of thought was this type of cooking? Mm -hmm. But then um, now, Mike, you're bringing in other things and sort of expanding that viewpoint. 
things that to us now seem like just par- yeah. part of the the Israeli pantry, you know, pomegranate molasses, date syrup, tahini, all those things, you know, uh, preserved lemons, all these ingredients that are building blocks of like the modern kind of Israeli kitchen are maybe things that 15 years ago before Mike, you know, opened Zahav and started putting them on the menus and giving them like more of a stage seemed foreign but now are really part really part and parcel of this cuisine that's kind of become like if you look at how Israeli restaurants have proliferated all over the United States I mean it's getting to the point where you know you say I I feel like Israeli today sort of the same way you would say I feel like Italian Mexican Mm -hmm. you know it's the same so that is that's what's happened you know so I think a lot of those ingredients but you mentioned cauliflower you know obviously a whole roasted cauliflower is kind of an iconic modern Israeli dish but that we were talking about these stews and I wanted to make a vegan Sabbath stew for people who don't eat meat, but I really wanted to put something substantial in the middle. So I stuck a whole head of cauliflower in the center of the stew pot <laughs> um, and I let it cook down, surrounded it with all the same things, but with a little more umami to kind of make up for the lack of, you know, some pieces of meat releasing all of their goodness into the pot. So I added um, more tomato product and some d- different spices and other things to kind of like round it out. Which is what, what you have when you have this the sort of luxury of having this palette or this tapestry that Adina has that's right in front of her, right? She's got the shuk, like one of the busiest open air markets in Israel, mm-hmm. in her front door. And she gets to pull from a hundred different gastronomies. And the cauliflower in the chamin is, or the chont or whatever is non-traditional. But the idea of this... Um, whole head of cauliflower that was popularized um, uh, in many ways from modern Israeli chefs is now the star of this dish. So it's like vegan or it's like vegetarian. It's got the uh, the spirit of something that you would have that so many different cultures have had every single Friday night for generation. And now it's this like sort of new thing that has been like infused and, and transmitted. It's, it's brilliant. We are speaking with Adina Sussman about her latest a cookbook. It's called Shabbat. Very easy name to remember. Mm-hmm. Very essential thing. Um, when you name an Israeli cookbook, you have to think of a word that people are going to be able to pronounce. Oh, and it's yeah. not so easy. We're bad at that. Yeah, we're, you know? We are also, I have to mention, we're also speaking with Michael Solomonov, who is, uh, you know, you know as we well. Have a different approach to restaurant naming. Make well, sure they're unpronounceable. But Zahav and Shabbat, I think, are some, you know, two couple syllables. Yeah. Yes. Hebrew words, right? Um, anyways, I-, I wanted to ask about your personal Shabbat journey, Adina, sure. because as we mentioned earlier, you grew up in mm-hmm. a pretty observant mm-hmm. household. And then um, you drifted away from Shabbat in young adulthood. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was so relatable. Yeah. Because when you're a young adult, you're striving, you're yeah. reaching, you're looking for something different. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you look back at your childhood <laughs> and you're like, man, I kind of missed that there place. There was something there. There was something there. Yeah. When was that moment for you? I think it had a lot to do with my living in New York in yeah. my mid to late 20s. You know, I was trying to be a New York gal. You know, I was going to work and then going after work uh, straight to a dinner or to a show or to a bar. And then I would get home on Friday night and wake up on Saturday morning exhausted. So, you know, I decided to reinstate the idea of staying home on Friday nights mm-hmm. and cooking for friends. And that became the centerpiece of my weekend actually and you know and in Israel entertaining and cooking can also be very spontaneous in Israel I always joke that 
in the United States, spontaneity is penciled into the calendar like three <laughs> weeks in advance. <laughs> you know, there's no such thing really. Right. But in Israel, you can say, I'm making a big chameen. I'm going to open the pot at one o'clock. Come on by if you want to. And then people yeah. will truly just stop in. So, you know, there's this excitement, anticipation of like friends popping over. Not everything, you know, everything isn't necessarily done. It's a it's a different style. The house doesn't have to be immaculate. You can be chopping the salad when people are still there. It's about leaning into the imperfection and the relaxation as opposed to trying to put on a show. And and Adina and Mike as well, you both have openly spoken about your connection to Israel. Mm -hmm. Like it's like once you you kind of went there, mm -hmm. you said you know what, um, I, I feel so connected to this land, but then mm -hmm. also decided to root your love for food and the type of food you cook mm -hmm. in the culture of Israel. Can you talk about that connection and that specific decision to say Israeli cooking will be what my focus is? And Mike, I'll start with you. I used food as a way to reconnect to a country that I'm from, that I love, that I have roots in in a country that is really misunderstood, I think, uh, especially here in the States. How do you mean that? I mean that I think people have, I think that Israel is such a hot topic politically, mm. and I mean that nobody knows really a damn thing about it until they actually go over there and talk to mm -hmm. people, and that we make judgments, we objectify, we use, we virtue signal, and we sit, you know, 10,000 miles away in our armchair in the United States and flip through and make decisions about a country in a few seconds without knowing anything about it. And for me, the easiest way to help explain the complexity, mm -hmm. the, um, the, the commonality and the conflict is through food. Because I just was, you know, I had gone through a lot. My little brother was killed in the IDF serving. And, Israeli military. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, you know, I was born there. I grew up in the States. I, we moved back there. I left there. I was in love with it. I felt, and to this day, I mean, Philly is my home. I love it. I do not, my soul is at home. My soul is at rest when I'm in Israel. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, doesn't change it. In fact, it like strengthens, you know. And I just felt like I needed, I needed to do something that was going to, you know, help not advocate, but just something that was going to explain the country a little bit, you know, and do something that I love, which is, which is obviously food. You know, that's, I guess that's the start of what my um, relationship, my adult relationship was like to Israel. And it continues to strengthen and grow and we continue to learn more things about the country. I mean, the reality is I go there all the time. I know a lot about the history and about the culture, certainly a lot about food and gastronomy since I eat like a hundred meals a day when I'm over there. <laughs> when so good. when so I go good. back, I'm always like, holy crap, I've never seen this place. I've never mm. heard about this place. And sometimes, particularly as, as, uh, as it relates to like Palestinian cooking, these meals and these stories can be really hard and like often bittersweet or sometimes bitter depending on who it is mm -hmm. that you're talking to. But that does not exclude the relevance either gastronomic yeah. or the cultural or the political relevance of, of how they sort of sit yeah and it's much easier to face issues mm. with others around the table and for me you know why israel you know i've i've been writing about israeli food and wine for quite some time and it had been suggested that i write an israeli cookbook but 
until I moved to Israel about seven years ago, I did feel like I wouldn't be able to write the same book unless I was living there. And mm -hmm. then I eventually married an American Israeli guy who lives in Tel Aviv. Um, and once I was living in the Carmel market, I realized that I had the story to tell as, as an American woman living in Israel and trying to acclimate to the culture and how to share that back with people in the States, sort of like an insider outsider in a culture. So it's like, I'm still an immigrant trying to like yeah. find my way and, and figure out how I fit into this Israeli culture. And again, for me, food is always the most uh, like clarifying and organizing principle for me like to do that. It's, it sounds like you both are saying food as diplomacy in some ways. I food is communication. So. Food is communication. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like food is um, so visceral, you know, like these things that we love that bring us back to our like roots or make us feel mm -hmm. at home or whatever are oftentimes traditions that have like um, been around for hundreds of years that 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 speak to uh, migration, immigration, occupation, all these things. So yeah. it's diplomacy, but it's really the most human yeah. human way to sort of express yourself. And especially in this very um, sort of polarizing world that we live in where actual diplomacy is getting is going nowhere it's getting yeah. swallowed up by the internet <laughs> it is yeah. it is yeah and i think for me you know i look at the book and i see you know there are a lot of family recipes and i've gotten to the point where i'm so proud of the diversity of israeli food that i can now go back to the stuff that i grew up with and yeah. i don't think that five years ago i would have put as many of my mother's yeah. eastern european ashkenazi right. or my grandmother's fruit compote mother, or yeah. the potato kugel and all those things in there and i really wanted those in there because now that it's like boomeranging back for me and like those are as much a part of my jewish identity even my israeli identity as these incredible foods from other cultures that have so inspired and influenced me so it's kind of like all always evolving and it's and it's always like a personal journey of identity it is so interesting in this book the the side-by-side -side juxtaposition of some of the stuff that I grew up with and recognized mm -hmm. with, you know, Algerian meatballs by way of Bucks County. And you uh -huh. can read about that story in the book. <laughs> right. um, Baghdadi chicken curry. There was a dumpling thing, dushpara. Dushpara, yeah. Dush, I'd, never, I'd never heard of this. Mm -hmm. uh, Bukharian. they're yeah. like, imagine the most delicate, like tortellini on brodo, like Italian oh, style, but like a, like a like a, an Uzbeki Jewish version with a beautiful thin pasta shell and a mm. lovely like cilantro infused meat mixture and then a beautiful like simple beef broth that's mm. just like you oh. know how to say I feel like I can eat my sunglasses I know. <laughs> but I have you to have cilantro I would eat my freaking sunglasses so right good now. it's so good yeah. I have to bring up one thing though mm -hmm. Uh, that uh -oh. I wanted to make immediately, but yeah. I, I haven't had a chance yet, uh -huh. which was very simple. The shaken iced tahini coffee. Uh, now, before I let the both you go, you don't have to drink any, but I just want to present something Ooh. from my Shabbat <laughs> youth. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. This oh is <laughs> this is not exactly what we had, but this is um, sparkling grape juice. It's kosher. Oh. Um, and you wrote about. I would drink that. You would with drink a little it? seltzer. Oh, right. I was just gonna say gazos. Yeah. There's a place for yeah. this, right? I, I, I mean, this is super sweet. Oh yeah. Super sweet, non-alcoholic for the kids at Shabbat. <laughs> yeah. And the I have memories it's like of Jewish Martinelli's. It's Jewish Martinelli's. We actually had actual Martinelli's mm -hmm, at our Shabbat. Us too. And um, it wasn't good, 
but I remember it being good because it was on Shabbat. Mm. And I feel like that's the power of Shabbat to me, Yeah, is it transforms everything that was there into something that was beautiful. Something now, I'm special. sure this is all good food. I'm not saying it's not, but I just, to me, it, that, that, this is like Shabbat for me, something like this. Well, I think every Shabbat, Shabbat is for everyone. You know, I we've had, in my family growing up, we had hundreds of non-Jewish guests at our Shabbat meals. We had strangers, friends, visitors, people who needed an actual meal, people who needed a spiritual meal, people who needed some kind of nourishment. You know, Shabbat is a catch-all for a very beautiful Jewish concept of like a big tent of that combines, you know, the concept of welcoming guests into your home and you know, feeding everybody, like however, whether that's metaphorically or actually, and sort of bringing everyone to the table for sort of like a higher form of like intimacy and connection. And that to me really is what Shabbat is about. Love it. And that is Adina Sussman, author of the new cookbook, Shabbat, and Michael Solomonov, chef and co-owner of many Philadelphia restaurants, including Zaha. Coming up, we're going to find out what they're cooking for the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Stick with us. This is Studio 2 from WHYY. Supporting WHYY, the Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Funded by the Knight Foundation, the Chamber announces its Leading the Way Cell and Gene Therapy in Greater Philadelphia report. More at chmbr.biz backslash cgtphl. Hello, hello, hello. This is Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And hello, I am Cherry Gregg. <laughs> was that an impression of me? I, that was a little bit. <laughs> I hope I did okay. It was anyway, good, we asked you to tell us what's cooking in your kitchen this weekend, whether it's a meal for Rosh Hashanah, a Sunday dinner, or a recipe that has been passed down in your family for generations. And guess what? We got some good ones. We Thank y'all. Some good one. Dave said latkes. Everybody loves latkes. Those are the Jewish potato pancakes. Also, round challah. With honey is Ooh, good. That That's on Dave's delicious. table. And Kim um, from Instagram says 100 meatballs in gravy every Sunday. 100? 100 meatballs. That's a lot of meatballs. So Kim's having some people over. I'm yeah, guessing. I want to go. Yeah, about that. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't mind. I, like, I wouldn't mind. I like free home cooked food. <laughs> <laughs> Email from Erica says, I am at this moment making challah for the holiday Ooh. with fennel seeds orange zest, and white raisins. Ooh. I don't even know what white raisins are, so but I have specific. to have I love that. And by the way, you may recognize this name, <laughs> Shireen Arendt. Arendt, sorry, let me get that right. <laughs> Shireen Arendt, like parent, the one and only mom of Avi Wolfman Arendt. Tell Avi we're having sweet and spicy roast chicken, sauteed kale, dates and goat cheese, apple and honey, and of course, Belvel Kala, if he wants to come home. Can I come on with you, <laughs> Avi? Shout out to oh to Mama God. Shireen. Velvel, Velvel, by the way, is my my sister is a baker, and that's her business. She makes challah for like a living and other baked goods in the D.C. area, and it's all amazing. But I can never have it because um, it's all down in D.C. Yeah. So I just have to pine, or my mom tries to guilt me. I guess. I know home. this is this is ultimate <laughs> guilt right here. You gotta go. Um, in between your meals this weekend, Tanya Pendleton has. Uh, gathered up a great list of events to check out this weekend. Let's hear it. 
Whatever your thoughts are on pumpkin spice, you may as well embrace it because it's everywhere for the foreseeable future in stores and in lattes. That also means it's time for Pumpkinland, Lynn Villa Orchard's annual Welcome to Fall event starting on Saturday going through November 5th. Hay rides, pumpkin picking, and other activities are highlights of the family-friendly theme. It's Hispanic Heritage Month, and the Franklin Institute is acknowledging it with a day of celebration on Saturday. They'll have food, panels, and music with special appearances by Telemundo 62's weather anchor Janet Bolivar and guest chef Javier Aramboles. It goes from noon to 4 p.m. and is free with museum admission. At Cherry Street Pier on Saturday, Native Americans celebrate their culture at the We Are the Seeds event. There'll be dance, music, and art, and after 5 p.m., a dance party hosted by Reboot NYC. The free event starts at noon. The Rittenhouse Square Fine Art Show turns the square into the city's biggest outdoor art gallery, and it's now in its 96th year. It's going on this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, showcasing art from local and national artists in multiple disciplines. The fall version takes place on the perimeter of the park starting at 11 a.m. each day. Stagecrafters Theatre in Chestnut Hill has also been around for 90-plus years. Their latest production is the 2005 Tony and Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Doubt. It's about um, a young nun who's assigned herself to a life that she feels she understands, that's proscribed, that suddenly doesn't seem like what she signed up for. That was Meryl Streep, who starred in the film adaptation. You can see the stage version of Doubt through Sunday, October 1st. Tonight's Thursday, which means the Eagles can go 2-0 and at their home opener against the Minnesota Vikings. There are still tickets left for the game, which starts at 8.15 at the link. You can find your seats via our website, whyy.org slash things to do. Go Birds! From birds to beers. Not that much of a segue when you think about it. The Philadelphia Zoo is the site of the October Fest, the annual event at the Philadelphia Zoo. It's going on on Saturday from 7 to 10 p.m. with over 100 regional and local breweries providing top quality tastings. Food trucks and music will be on site as well for 21 and over only. And it's for a good cause supporting the nation's oldest zoo. You wouldn't drink and drive, and neither will the participants in the Coatesville Invitational Vintage Grand Prix. The seventh annual car race in downtown Coatesville is for older cars only from the 1900s to the 1980s. A pre-race gala tonight and two car shows make it a three-day weekend with the Grand Prix happening on Saturday.
didn't that song take you back? It should. Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer came out in 1986. But it still sounds fresh because he was ahead of his time, not just with the song, but with the award-winning video. He'll be in town at the Wells Fargo Center on Saturday at 8 p.m. It was a beautiful day. It's going to be a beautiful night. Break out the champagne. Everybody get a glass. We realize not all weekends end with champagne, but the best ones do. R&B crooner Neo is in town to toast it up on the Champagne and Roses tour with Mario and Pleasure P. They'll be at The Man on Sunday at 7.30 p.m. Wishing you roses and champagne, or at least the experiences that deserve them, as we wind down this week's Things to Do. But we'll be back next Thursday with even more events. Head to our website, whyy.org slash things to do for more details on what you've heard and why you should be heading to the Winter Tour Museum in Delaware to check out the Anne Lowe exhibit. Whatever you choose to do, have a great weekend, everyone. Should be nice weather, too. Looking forward to this weekend. We did promise we would tell you what Adina and Michael are going to have on their tables for Rosh Hashanah. Adina told us fig and pomegranate brisket, her grandmother's potato kugel, and some crunchy bright salads. And Michael said half-smoked brisket with charred onions. You digging? I'm digging, and I want an invitation. I wish I was digging in with a uh, fork and knife. All <laughs> kinds of brisket. I can't. That sounds so delicious. And we appreciate them being on the show and giving us those recipe ideas. It was and a delicious week of studio, too. It was. Too. It was. And this wraps up our show for the week. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is the engineer for today's show. WHYY's audio general manager is Joan Isabella. You can head on over to whyy.org slash studio two for the podcast or download us wherever you get your pods. From Studio Two at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. And on behalf of my entire family, my mom included, I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Thank you everybody for joining us this week. We will be back on Tuesday.